I was going to touch on the news again tonight and tell you what you probably already know, but instead I decided to hit the topics that we all need to hear and learn from. Survival. And a small guide on how to survive, thrive, and stay alive in today's world. Welcome, everyone, on this frigid night, and thank you for joining me around the campfire with Kate. Again, Dave Bray and Jeremy Harold did an amazing job on the music and lyrics. America is dying, but it's not too late. So go on over to YouTube and listen to Dave Bray. Come and get warm by the campfire while I tell you my ideas on how to survive in today's world of chaos. This is a live call-in show through Skype only, so if you have an idea or suggestion, please feel free to call in using Skype through PSN Radio. And remember, if you miss a live broadcast, you can catch me on SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, Twitch, Spotify, YouTube, Facebook, any other great places where you hear podcasts. We all seem to think that we have intelligence when it comes to surviving in situations. So what's your survivor IQ? What type of survivor are you? Oh, Kate, I can survive in any situation. I don't care what it is. Okay. Well, it's not easy to categorize people. After all, there's like over 6.6 billion of us on Earth. And everyone is different. Everyone is unique. But after studying the personalities and patterns of people who overcome adversity, there's five main survivor types that emerge. The fighter, the believer, the connector, the thinker, and the realist. What category describes you the best? So you may be wondering if you've got the best survivor type. And that's natural. So let me allay your concerns. Sure, some people might be better suited to certain survival challenges. And you might benefit from certain strengths in specific survival situations, like fighters may be better equipped to survive a hostage situation or a violent crime. But believers are effective too. And many ex-prisoners of war say that faith is their most important weapon in captivity. And it's critical to emphasize that one type isn't any better than the other. Each has different strengths, but all have what it takes to survive. It's also essential to point out that some people may fit into more than one group. In fact, you may recognize different aspects of your personality in each of the survivor types. A profiler will take this into account when he calculates your survival IQ. You also may wonder if it's possible to change your survivor type. The answer is probably not. In terms of your personality, psychologists say it's not easy to change who you are at the deepest levels where spontaneous thoughts, actions, and beliefs originate. So that being said, it's definitely possible to make changes in your attitudes and behaviors and to develop new abilities to cope with adversity. So what follows are descriptions of the five survival types. Let's hit the fighter. Fighters come in every shape and size. To be a fighter, you don't have to punch like Muhammad Ali or refuse to surrender like a true soldier. Fight head on against any odds. They are driven to succeed and won't stop until they achieve their goals. When you're a fighter, you never stop attacking. Even at your lowest, you still find a way to bounce back and counterpunch. You have passion for life and seize every day with zest and zeal. You've got the willpower and determination to struggle, resist, and overcome, even in the face of formidable opposition. Maybe you're courageous and brave. Maybe you're aggressive and competitive. Maybe you're stubborn and unyielding. No matter, you get pumped up by the heat of the battle. 
You push yourself to the best. You're motivated by a sense of purpose or a calling greater than yourself. You're here on earth for a reason that is worth real sacrifice. You are resilient. You are tenacious. And you often feel stronger because you have endured endured hardships in the past. When you get knocked down, you bounce back up. You are indomitable, psychologically tough, and you can endure more physical pain and suffering than most people. You keep going when others have given up, and you battle to the very end. Above all, you are a fighter. The believer. When you are a believer, you put your faith in God to protect and sustain you through your trials. Your beliefs and convictions are like preservers, keeping you above water in difficult times. You trust deeply that God has a plan for your life and will steer you through any adversity. You are convinced the Lord would never give you a challenge that you could not handle. Your upbeat spirits lifts you up when others are down. Even in the worst times, you feel blessed and are confident that things will always work out for the best. Even if death approaches, you find comfort knowing that God loves you and your life is in his hands. You draw remarkable emotional and physical power from your faith. Strengthened and guided by God, you feel capable of shouldering almost any burden. If you call out to him and open yourself up to his wisdom, you know he will answer. This faith faith also gives you optimism and hope which are powerful weapons in survival. You're able to banish negative feelings or flip them around into positive thoughts. You find humor in the darkest times and even laugh in the face of adversity. You are strengthened and emboldened by your faith and comforted by the conviction that your fortunes will improve one way or another on this earth or in the next life. Above all, You are a believer. The connector. When you are a connector, you overcome incredible adversity with the power of your relationships and bonds with other people. You're deeply devoted to your friends and family. Your love for your parents, spouse, partner, children, and friends motivates you to tackle enormous obstacles. You know that your family and friends depend on you and need you. You hold these relationships sacred and you will go to any lengths to protect and preserve them. You draw strength from these primary relationships and often rely on support groups or social networks to help you through difficult times. You are able to lean on others for aid and you know how to reach beyond your circle of friends to find help that you need. You are a good networker who makes the most of your connections. You often feel great empathy for others who are struggling. You take care of other people before you look after yourself. You are good at reading strangers in situations. You know how to get along with others. You play well on teams and work effectively with others to get things done. You survive because of your powerful bonds. You would endure anything and do anything for the people that you love. Above all, you are a connector. The thinker. When you're a thinker, you use your brain to overcome obstacles. Your intelligence has many dimensions. You rely on a combination of smarts, creativity, and ingenuity to solve problems. Book learning is not your only source. You've also got street smarts and common sense. You see your challenges clearly and are a good diagnoser of the underlying nature of a problem. In tough times, you look at all the angles, generate new ideas, and discover unexpected solutions. You don't get distracted easily. You're highly focused, analytical, and rigorous. You concentrate on what needs to get done. Your mind is practical, 
and not up in the clouds. You're good at turning ideas into actions. When others get stuck, you can improvise and find a way out. Logic and reason help you understand the real facts of your situation and the consequences of your choices. Common sense helps you apply your knowledge and experience in creative and productive ways. While some people depend on muscle and brawn to win life's battles, you rely on your mind. Above all, you are a thinker. The realist. When you are a realist, you recognize that everything does not always go as planned. You take life as it comes, knowing that you can control some things, but not everything. Instead of resisting or fighting, you make the most of your situation. And you go with the flow. When others overreact or panic, you stay calm and collected. When you face a challenge, you are pragmatic, quickly figuring out the best way to cope. Your reactions are instinctive and practical. They occur almost without thinking like second nature. And you have immediate insight into your problems. Intuitively, you know how to sit back and wait for the worst to pass. You also know when the moment is right to take action. You are confident in your ability to do what you need to do. In a crisis, some people lose sight of reality. They get overwhelmed. They are overly pessimistic or overly optimistic. But you are the opposite. You deal with facts and what is really in your control. You survive by riding out the storms of life and doing what is necessary to keep going. Above all, you are a realist. So think about it. Which one are you? Me? I think I have a little bit of all of them. In starting and living in a small survival community, I have been asked a lot of times, what do you do? How do you do it? What do you look for in the people in your community? Well, we found that there are five overlooked roles in your survival group or your community in a serious scenario. The person who manages the food and water. What happens if there's no running water? Each group should have a delegated person who knows where to get the water, how to purify the water for consumption for the amount of people within that group. If your water source is outside of the perimeter of your property and group and you have to fetch that water, then you will have to think about the security to get to that water source. How much water do you need? How is it going to be carried? Can you build something to pump the water to your property? Can you dig a well? This person is in charge of everything water. Make sure this person is a person who can stay focused on how to manage the food and the water. You need a medic or a strong medical person. What skill level does your medic have? Does this person have the equipment and supplies needed for almost any given scenario. Can this person cross-train the rest of the group? Not every group will be lucky enough to have a medical doctor on their team. Do not be discouraged. There's many people out there that I would trust more than a medical doctor to stitch me up or perform emergency surgeries. You need a negotiator and a mediator. This is the person who keeps up the morale. He keeps the infighting to a low roar. Every group is going to have some people that just like to have disagreements. Some groups will have the sister Bertha better than you that just loves to gossip and cause dissension just to see people argue. I encourage each person to not have someone like that in their group, but it happens. The negotiator and mediator lays down the rules to the dissenters. If they violate the rules, 
They're out. Period. No exceptions. The negotiating mediator must be firm about this and not be afraid to stand up to the bullies. The negotiator and mediator needs to be a person who is most respected in the group, someone who can handle most situations with diplomacy. Then there's the MacGyver. This is the guy who can tinker with and create anything and fix anything with seemingly nothing. They focus on the mechanics of most problems needing fixed or built, and they fix it or they build it. Then there's the strategic planner. Choose a person that knows each person's strengths and weaknesses and knows how to use each person effectively and efficiently. These group members give added value to your group. Then there are the nine points of preparedness, the nine areas of survival, like roadmaps for your group. First off, what are your weaknesses? Then what are your strengths? Number one, food. Shelf-stable foods, such as pantry items, garden food, nature's refrigerator, which is live food, do not underestimate the calories that are needed in a survival situation. Pantry foods would be like sugar, flour, oats, rice, beans, canned vegetables, canned meats, you know, canned fruits. The garden foods is self-explanatory. There's probably one or two people in your group that not only know how to work a garden, but know how to can those vegetables as well. Nature's refrigerator is deer, elk, bear, moose, squirrel, rabbit. You get the picture. These critters are already walking around and primed. If you have the skills to trap a rabbit, I would try to trap a male and a female, then breed them. The rest is prime for your winter's meat if you know how to smoke the meat, can the meat, or jerky. The MacGyver in your group can build a smokehouse, and you're set. Each group member should have their own food storage and be required to contribute to the community food pantry. I say this because there are some groups that a group member would think, oh, I do not need to supply any food for the community, so if the poop hits the fan, I can just show up and there's already going to be food. Uh-uh. That does not work in a community. If you have a community of people or a group of survivors and you have a bug-out location, each person contributes to the community food pantry. Each person has a footlocker with a lock on it, has a tiny home with a lock on it if they do not live on the premises, and they can supply their own pantries, per se. That way, if the poop does hit the fan and they come to the community, they have their own food and they have their own storage of things. They are not relying on your storage of food. Number two of the nine, water. When the power goes out, do you have water and access to water? Do you have a water plan? Do you have a quality water filter? Do you know how to distill water or purify water? These are all things that you should know before something happens. And this is why you need to have one or two people, depending on the size of your group, in charge of the water. They are not just solely in charge of the water to where it's like, I know how to get the water and you don't, so you do what I say or you're going to go thirsty. That is not how it works. These people are in charge of the water, so if and when there is an issue, they know how to deal with the issue. And they can train you and teach you how to deal with the issue as well. Shelter, number three. I'm not just talking about a roof over your head. I'm also talking about your clothing, tarps, tents, vehicles, fort, etc. Do you know how to build a shelter in the woods? Do you know how to build a shelter in the desert? And do you know how to build a shelter in between the suburbs, your backyard? 
somebody else's backyard. Do you know how to survive with just the clothing on your back? How heavy is your tent? These are all things that you need to be taking into consideration now before it's too late. When the poop hits, it's too late to say, my canvas tent is too heavy to take with me. When you could have purchased just as large of a tent that does just as good a job that is not canvas, but maybe a four-season nylon tent. Number four, safety and health. Even the smallest of cuts or scratches need attention. No cut should go without the medic looking at it and treating it. You guys out there, oh, it's just a cut. I do not need it looked at. The smallest cut can cause an amputation if it gets infected and goes untreated. Swallow your pride and see the medic. Hygiene is extremely important. Where do you go to the bathroom? Each tiny home or each shelter should have a composting toilet or some way to eliminate that is not going to contaminate your community. Place outhouses on your property. And you also need to take care of your feet. We need to have good oral hygiene. Need to reinforce safety. Have safety meetings and gripe sessions once a week. Say like, choose a Monday. And everybody gets together and they have a gripe session. In this gripe session, they talk about any arguments or anything that they have not been able to resolve amongst one another. So we can get them out and aired out in the open so there's nothing festering. And then we co- we cover all kinds of topics concerning safety during these gripe sessions. Say, for example, if I have a gripe session about the cook or the way the ranch foreman is doing fencing or whatever, this is the time to bring it up. I also have a complaint box in the common room or in the kitchen area or whatever for that shy person that doesn't want to make waves with another person but still wants to air out their grievance. Gossip stops right there at those gripe sessions. If someone comes to me and has a gripe about so-and-so because so-and-so said this and done that, it stops right there. Let's go talk to so-and-so and work this out because I'm not a go-between, nor am I a mediator. So I'm letting you know right now, you come to my little place and you want to gossip about so-and-so, I'm going to take you to so-and-so and you can talk about that gossip to so-and-so's face. I encourage you, never say something behind someone's back that you will not say to their face and go to their face first. Number five, security, offensive and defensive. A lot of people get stuck on this one. You can have all the supplies in the world for you, your family, and your whole group. But if you do not have a way to keep them secure, You are just holding them for those who do have a means to take them away from you. So all of that work that you've done, you're just going to give it away because you don't have security. And security has to be a layered approach. Passive security, aggressive patrolling, which is watching the bad guys so you can form aggressive security based on enemy observation. Number six, energy. You don't have to concern yourself with batteries in the long term. Graceful degradation is graduating from on-grid to off-grid. Can you do it? It is one of the easiest luxuries to live without. For us here at the ranch, we have solar. 
our tiny home runs off of solar power. The amount of power is determined by how many panels each person has for their particular home. At our tiny home, oh, sorry, are your tiny homes near one another in order to share solar power? That's a good question. Not at our place. Our tiny homes are far enough away from one another that we have our own lives and we cannot see each other, but we're close enough that if help is needed, we come running. Our communication can all run off of solar, which brings me to number seven, communication. Do you have a base or a communication room? Do you have effective leadership? How many radios per household? Do you know how to drop messages? Read route maps? Can you communicate effectively? Do you work with codes? Does everyone in your group know the codes? Can you read a strip map? Do you have multiple lines of communication? These are all things that you need to know the answers to. Do you have a leader who can teach you how to do all of these things in communication? Number eight, how are you going to move around? Not only on the property, but back and forth to possible meeting places with other groups or a grocery store that might still be open during a poop hits the fan scenario or do you have a truck, a car, a four-wheeler, bicycle, a leather personnel carrier, which is your feet, horses, donkeys, improvised transportation, a baby stroller, shopping cart, a fold-up wagon. If you are caught off guard by a catastrophe, how do you plan to get home or to your secure location? Your leather personnel carrier, your feet, is one of the best ways. But if you can get a two-wheel or a four-wheel way to get to your, your location, it's a lot quicker and a lot less tiring on you. Number nine, intelligence and situational awareness. What are the hazards or threats in your area? Are they natural or man-made? What are the potential issues that you are facing? Do you have multiple routes to your secure location? What are your avenues of escape or avenues of approach? What is the intel coming in and the intel going out? You need to keep yourself informed. You need to make a plan. Document in your head what you need to do and start implementing that. Always remember, stay calm. Your worst enemy is panic, especially when you are learning how and involved in how to win in a gunfight. And why do I say a gunfight? Well, most of the time when there are riots or the poop hits the fan, people are going to panic. I doubt they're going to be bringing a knife to try to get your gear. With 250 plus or minus years of war fighting under its belt, our United States military knows a thing or two about how to win a gun battle. And while it's not what most of us would call everyday knowledge, these tactical concepts are what the pros use to create and hold an advantage in worst-case gun-blazing confrontations. I will give you a very brief synopsis of 13 military gunfight tactics. And you need to listen carefully. No one plans to get in a gunfight, but if you're to stumble across one, would you be able to win against heavy fire? Have you ever shot at a person? Have you ever shot another human being? If you've hesitated on the last answer, would you be able to shoot another human being? It's safe to assume that you need to take a page from a military handbook and brush up on some gunfight tactics that will potentially save your life and those around you 
Okay, I can shoot somebody if they're trying to hurt my woman. Can you? No, talk is cheap. Once you have shot another human being, life will never be the same. You will be changed. But if you have to, in self-defense, I am not saying that it is a proud moment that you saved your family. What I am saying is that if you have to, a human life to save you and your family then you have to since it's extremely difficult to predict when a gunfight's going to occur prepare yourself beforehand and it will give you a better chance of survival and winning that is why we're going to go over the 13 tactics used by military to ensure you and wherever you are fighting along, whoever you are fighting alongside with can come out victorious. Number one, weapon fire, weapon stop. It is one of the important rules that soldiers are taught in initial weapons training. And it is something you need to keep in the back of your head before finding yourself in a gunfight. A gunfight is nothing like the movies and it's nothing like say call of duty where your gun of choice never jams or runs out of ammunition stuff happens from no ammo to your gun not automatically reloading because there's a piece of metal lodged in the ejection port this is exactly why soldiers are taught to carry a secondary weapon like a pistol in addition to your primary weapon. You might be thinking, well, you're a good enough shooter to be able to just pull out the magazine, cock the weapon, and easily shake out the jam. But remember, you're in the middle of a... and every second counts. When you have that extra pistol on you, you can sling your primary weapon and keep firing until you find decent cover to get your primary working and unjammed again. Cover fire, also known as fire and movement. Covering fire is a great gunfighting technique to use when you need to retreat and reposition or decide to attack your enemy. If you're in a gunfight, you probably have some buddies helping you. Use your numbers to your advantage by abiding by this rule. And the rule is, if you are not running, you are shooting. And if you are shooting, you are not running. When you can, stay low and keep moving. Everything is synchronized. If you are retreating, one person shoots while the other person runs until you can find safe enough cover to counterattack. If you are attacking, shoot in the enemy's direction while your buddy runs. The rule of running, number three. This rule of thumb is taught during initial combat training for military forces worldwide. And you might have heard of it. I'm up. He sees me. I'm down. Let me repeat that. I'm up. He sees me. I'm down. This saying needs to go through your head as soon as you take your first step to run for cover. It gives you just enough time to move and not provide your enemy with a chance to take aim and fire. If you take longer than this, anyone with a good amount of training will be able to make a clean shot. Now, when I say down, I'm not referring to dropping to the ground. You'll want to get down behind some sort of sufficient cover like a wall. So you can then start shooting and allow your buddy to run. You are providing cover fire for your buddy. 
then when it is your turn, he will lay down, cover fire for you so you can run. Number four, eyes peeled. There are three important things to always be looking for when you're in the middle of a gunfight that is essential to your survival. Your enemies, your buddy, and potential cover. In addition to looking for your enemy, you need to recognize where they last were and where their bullets sound like they are coming from. This is particularly important when implementing fire and movement because you will be firing at your enemy while your buddy moves. When it comes to your buddy, you will want to know where he is or be able to listen out for his shooting in order to identify when you need to run or when you need to shoot. If he is shooting, you need to be running. But if his weapon jams and you don't hear a shooting, then that means that you need to start shooting. Number five, rabbits are not welcomed. Imagine you are hunting on a hunting trip with a buddy and you see a rabbit eating grass. It bends down to eat, pops its head up, then bends back down again. You say to your buddy, there's a rabbit three meters right of that bush. And wouldn't you know it, the rabbit pops its head up in that exact same spot and bam! If you were the rabbit, you would be dead in seconds, which is what will happen if you do something similar in a real fight. Not acting like a rabbit is is an essential part of I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. And it's the only way to be successful at it. If you are taking aim at your enemy, you will be aiming at the last place you saw him and waiting until he pops his head up to take a clear shot. Keep that in mind when you run for cover and begin providing cover for your buddy. Because it's the same thing your enemy will be doing to you. And once you've made it to cover and you are out of the line of fire, move or crawl a few meters laterally before popping up and firing again. Creative cover. When you, that's number six. When you think of cover, think of a place to hide. But it's also somewhere to shoot from and land some shots on your enemy so that your buddy can narrow the gap between you and the enemy if you are running to them. Since a gunfight will most likely take place in an urban setting with houses, fences, cars, windows. You need to be able to be creative and use it to your advantage. Whatever is around you, use it and use it well. For example, if you are using a vehicle for cover, remember that the engine block can stop a bullet from an enemy fire, so hide behind the fender where the engine block covers you. If you use the trunk side of the vehicle, that will slow a bullet down, but it will not stop a bullet from penetrating and hitting and possibly killing you. Our special forces are trained to use flexibility and creativity in the midst of a gunfight, and it is something that you need to do too. But it is not just about finding any cover. You will want to find cover that provides you with a solid firing position where you can control your breathing and your weapon so you make precise shots. A lot of people do not understand that controlling your breathing when you fire is very important. Number seven, confidence, aggressiveness, and quickness. 
these are the three qualities you need to have when you enter a gunfight. If you try to take it nice and slow when bullets are flying, you will end up being shot. Confidence is a necessity in a gunfight. If you start to doubt yourself or even start to doubt your buddy, your chances of survival dwindle down to very low. Have confidence in your ability. Have confidence in your buddy's ability. Being aggressive is a huge part of being on the offensive and can determine whether or not you win this gunfight. If you uphold an offensive position with your buddy, your enemy will be facing the precise force that they will end up not being able to handle the pressure. That is, when they will make a crucial mistake, you will take advantage of that mistake. Once your enemy starts to panic, you are now in control of the gunfight. And that control will ultimately allow you to win. And of course, the quicker you are to retreat or to attack, the more opportunities you will have to hold off your enemy or confuse them enough so that you catch them off guard and win the fight. If you are in a gun battle, it isn't a matter of trying to negotiate with them. It is kill or be killed. Catch them off guard and do what you have to do. Planning number eight is everything. There are so many things that can happen in a gunfight, but you should be prepared for anything by having a primary plan and a backup plan to set in place beforehand. It can be a simple plan, like sitting and firing a few shots to find out what type of weapons you're up against and where the shots are coming from or going on the offensive with your buddy until you can run a flank. Any type of plan will be extremely beneficial when bullets are flying overhead because you won't have a lot of time to sit and discuss while you're in the thick of the situation. When it comes to a gunfight, it is hard to predict where it will happen. And that can make it difficult to develop a plan and a backup plan. Every terrain is different, but each comes with its own exposure points and weaknesses that you can take advantage of in the moment. To do that, you will need to implement your situational awareness and the OODA loop theory that I discussed in the situational awareness lesson. Observe your enemy. Orient how they are acting and what you can do to counter and win that action. Decide on the best course of action to take. Action is taken. The loop then continues back into the observation phase. O-O-D-A, the OODA loop theory. This all takes place in a matter of seconds. Number nine, the flanking maneuver. When flanking an enemy, you are essentially attacking at an angle to the enemy's direction of engagement from one or more sides. It is a basic military tactic with many different variations that you can use to your advantage when in a gunfight. Let's try an ambush. That's a surprise attack from a concealed position with other members of the unit hidden to the sides of the ambush to further surround the enemy. Enemy defensive position is when flanking is used against an enemy's defensive position. You will receive the enemy's fire 
then fix the enemy with suppressive fire, which will stop them from returning fire, retreating, or changing positions. Your flanking force will then move to the enemy's flank and attack them at close range. And double envelopment, also known as the pincher movement. It is one of the most effective forms of flanking and revolves around simultaneous flank attacks in front, on both sides, and the rear of the enemy's formation. The main goal is to encircle your enemy and either force a surrender or completely destroy them. Number 10. Gunfight from a car. If you are in a car when a gunfight begins, you need to get get out of that thing quickly because it is the ultimate bullet magnet. If you are riding around in a bulletproof car, then you're going to be fine. But most of us are not the president. However, you can just pop out of a car without getting sprayed with bullets. You can't just do that. Instead, This is what can be done once your cars come to a stop. Divert your enemy's attention and make them duck by firing some rounds in their direction. You open the door and remember to hold it open with your foot. Lead with your gun out the door. Fire shots at your enemy while you are exiting the car. Once you are out of the car, position yourself so that the vehicle is between yourself and the enemy. Number 11. Bringing a knife to a gunfight. I'm sure you've heard it before, whether it be in real life or in a movie. You don't bring a knife to a gunfight. But guys, I'm here to tell you, That's the opposite of what our special forces are taught to do in battle. The best thing is to carry a knife on you in case it is your last option. Okay? Imagine being in a gunfight. You used up all of your energy and all of your ammunition, including your backup pistol, to get to the enemy. Now it comes down to pure strength of you and the enemy. Do you really want to rely on your diminishing strength to determine the outcome of this long gunfight that you've been put through? I would say no. Just like I told you, to have a backup pistol, it's a good idea to have a backup knife. So you still have the advantage over your enemy in close combat. Number 12. Get in physical shape. Getting down and doing push-ups right now is not going to work. You need to have a workout regimen put in place before SHTF so that you can be fully prepared for the endurance part of a gunfight. There are many reasons why you should maintain a good fitness level, but the three most important, in my opinion, are as follows. It keeps your confidence up and provides you with a level-headed and tactical mindset. It gets you from one point to another point effectively and quickly. And it provides you with steady aim after you've been sprinting. If you do not have a workout regimen in place, the best place to start is with interval training. But Kate, I'm older in years and I've let myself go and I'm tired. You know what? I'm tired. I'm older in years. I've packed on a pound or two that I'm not going to tell you about that I just told you about as well. I'll tell you what, if I can do it, so can you. Number 13, 
if you do not have a chest rig in your go bag or in your truck and you really want to increase your chances of winning in a gunfight, then you'll want to grab a chest rig. With a chest rig, you can carry more magazines. You'll have a smaller working area between the quick draw of your magazines to the loading port of your handgun and rifle. And you can also fasten your knife to it. The best way to avoid getting into a gunfight is just flat out avoid it. But if you can't, you need to do everything in your power to win. This is a life or death situation. And in this country right now, it is coming to this. People, you need to understand this. Using all of these military tactics that I've just gone over and training in these tactics, you would hopefully have a clear advantage over the enemy. So let's get inside the mind of a terrorist surveillance and in situational awareness. This is the second article that I've written in a series discussing real-world terrorism operational planning. This is written by Trap Wire Director Michael Mace. Mike spent two decades as a senior operations officer and field manager with the Central Intelligence Agency and was involved in counterterror investigations ranging from Pan Am 103 through 9-11. Mike's real-world experience, like others working at Trapwire, brings a unique perspective to our counterterror services. In 2004, acting on a tip from a recently arrested terrorism suspect, Pakistani police raided an al-Qaeda's safe house in Garjarat, Pakistan. Among the large amount of evidence collected at the scene were several laptops and 51 compact discs containing details on numerous al-Qaeda operations in the United States and the United Kingdom. The discovery of this treasure trove of surveillance and operational plans was a shock to the intelligence and law enforcement communities. The target list was extensive and included the Prudential Plaza in Newark, New Jersey, the World Bank, and IMF headquarters building in Washington, D.C., and the New York Stock Exchange, City Corps Center, and several Jewish targets in New York City. Even more surprising was the fact that much of the surveillance and pre-attack intelligence collection had been conducted by one single individual and had taken place in New York before and after the attacks of September 11th. So this begs the obvious question. How did a lone Al-Qaeda operative manage to conduct surveillance and pre-attack operations in a city that had just undergone the single greatest terrorist attack in United States history? A city that many assumed was buttoned up tight in the aftermath of the attacks. I'll tell you the answer. He took advantage of the Gates, Guns, and Guards mindset that existed at the time, which was completely focused on reacting to and repelling attacks rather than trying to detect and stop them in the preparatory stages. Dairan Bayro was born in 1971 in India. His parents moved to the United Kingdom in 1973, where he attended school and eventually gained employment with Air Malta as a ticket agent in central London. After forces in the Kashmir region, his early experiences prompted him to write a book, The Army of Madna in Kashmir, in which he describes various techniques to inflict harm on enemy soldiers. A bookstore owner named Moazam Beg helped publish the book. It was through Beg that Barrow probably made his first contact with al-Qaeda, where he eventually came to the attention of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, or KSM, al-Qaeda's director of operations. KSM provided additional training and surveillance, pre-attack intelligence, collection operations, and procurement of weapons and explosives. 
Barreau quickly distinguished himself as an excellent surveillance and attack planner and produced a 39-page memo on surveillance and techniques and the use of everyday items in the construction of improvised explosive devices and was shared through Al-Qaeda. In 2000, Barreau traveled to the United States on a student visa, though there is no record of him ever applying at any U.S. university. Over the next three to four years, Barreau would travel back and forth between the United Kingdom and the United States, conducting extensive surveillance operations against a wide variety of targets in both countries. It was his work against the, the Prudential Building in New York in New Jersey that showed exactly how meticulous and detailed-oriented his operational planning had become. A good portion of Barreau's surveillance was conducted from a coffee shop with line of sight of the Prudential Building. He spent hours there every day studying the foot and vehicular traffic in and around the building. He drew maps of the site, marking CCTV placements, as well as notes on security personnel and procedures. It's worth noting that Burroughs family, excuse me, that Burroughs lengthy sessions at the coffee shop did come to the attention of employees working there. However, this was well before see something, say something campaigns. Thus, his actions were only noted during the subsequent post-attack investigations. Burroughs careful study of the Prudential building brought a potential vulnerability to this, to, to uh, his attention. Most vehicles at entered the underground parking garage were inspected except stretch limousines which he presumed were, were VIPs who were exempted from vehicle checks. Burroughs' attack plan was simple. Rent or steal a, several stretch limousines, tear out the seating, fill the vehicles with explosives and move on from them. He calculated that a limousine would fit more easily under the low parking garage ceilings, but still carry enough explosives to inflict high casualties and considerable damage to the building. Additionally, in his operational notes to Al-Qaeda, Barreau recommended using dirty bombs. In other words, adding some kind of radioactive substance to the the VBIED. But that was not possible. He suggested simply adding fuel or gas tanks, painted yellow, detonating potentially hazardous materials. Barreau understood the American mindset. The discovery of metal casings from a possible hazmat canister would have created immediate panic and probably bring the entire area to a standstill, whether or not a hazardous substance was actually discovered at the site or not. Barreau's surveillance operations against the Citigroup Center also provides an insight into the mindset of a dedicated terrorist surveillance. He finished his finished report totaled 35 pages, including drawings and sketches, and highlighted each building's viability as a target based on expected casualty counts, descriptions of construction materials used, total weight and number of floors, and a detailed breakdown of structural features such as columns, open spaces, loading bays, and entrances and exits. As the Prudential Building, he carefully marked CCT. TV locations, and other security features. Barreau also developed an area map marking first responder locations as well as airports, traffic signals, and suggested egress routes after the attack. Fortunately, Barreau's plans were never carried out as he was arrested by British authorities in August of 2004 and charged with conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to use a weapon of mass destruction, and the possession of reconnaissance material related to the Prudential Building in New Jersey, the International Monetary Fund and World Bank headquarters in D.C., and the New York Stock Exchange and Citigroup in New York City. He is currently serving a 30-year sentence in the United Kingdom. Although Barreau's arrest certainly caused a disruption in al-Qaeda's operational planning at the time, it is worth noting his surveillance plans and operational notes were widely distributed throughout al-Qaeda and are probably still used as training material for future terror, terrorism plans. There has been considerable debate as to whether or not Barreau could have actually carried out these plans. In my opinion, Bro was not looking to undertake the attacks himself, but rather to pass his intelligence to future attack 
teens for their use. But regardless, the true lesson here is that he was able to collect this kind of actionable intelligence against high-value targets with impunity, which should serve as a reminder that our adversaries remain creative and patient in their attack preparations. Fortunately, the raid on Al-Qaeda's safe house in 2004 brought Barrow to justice. Our nation is facing attacks seemingly on every front, people, from enemies both foreign and domestic. Open your eyes and watch. Observe your surroundings. Situational awareness is needed now more than ever. It is my hope that you are gleaning from experiences that I am sharing through these broadcasts. This ends the broadcast for me tonight, and there is a reason why I end every show with train hard, train smart, to survive, thrive, and stay alive. This is Kate, signing off until next time.